Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, everybody, to the eighth episode of our limited series, Audio Judo Does Jazz. I'm Kyle from the podcast Audio Judo, and I'm here to give you a quick introduction to this episode. But first, I want to mention that both Audio Judo and Audio Judo Does Jazz are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network. If you're interested in any genre of music, music history, or just want to discover great new music, Pantheon has got at least one podcast that you'll love. Visit PantheonPodcasts.com to see the entire catalog. On this episode of Audio Judo Does Jazz, Chris gets a little avant-garde while he talks about legendary jazz saxophonist and composer Ornette Coleman. Take it away, Chris. It didn't start out by picking up a single album of Ornette Coleman's. I think one day I just took the plunge and purchased the box set of recordings he did for Atlantic Records from 1959 to 1961. It's called Beauty is a Rare Thing. It's a six-disc box set that contains about nine vinyl albums worth of material. I didn't really know what I'd got myself into. One reason I picked it up, to be honest, is because I thought it might make me look cool. Look at me! Look what I got! How cool am I, right? I don't think I really accomplished that, but that's okay. Secondly, I felt I needed to contribute to the search and to the discovery my friends Rick, Scott, and I had been enjoying. We had been on a mission to discover all this music we had only read about in books. We brought various albums back to the sacred stereo to see what we could learn from it. It's not unlike the Dead Poets Society movie, when the boys brought food and poems and stories to the cave in their initial steps towards sucking the marrow out of life. Finally, spending $60 or so, or however much it cost back then, had been a leap of faith. If I didn't immediately love it, like I had with Coltrane, Monk, or Mingus, I figured I would someday. The book said so. These albums were all rated five stars and such. Well, I didn't love it that first day. It took me quite a while, in fact. Scott and Rick seemed to take to it right away, but they always seemed to be hip to things well before me. 
My first impressions on any of a number of occasions have been a little off. I once thought the Rolling Stones album Beggar's Banquet to be too country. Wrong. Scott and I once had a discussion as to why people preferred the Birds version of Mr. Tambourine Man to Bob Dylan's original. I think I said that it's probably because it sounded much more accessible to the human ear. That may or may not be true to a public that doesn't value Bob Dylan, but angelic harmonies and glorious 12-string guitar aside, the Birds version doesn't hold a candle to Bob's original. My first impression of the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds album, widely regarded as possibly the greatest album in rock and roll history, right up there with the Beatles' Revolver and Sgt. Pepper, was three good songs and a bunch of mediocrity. I just didn't get the greatness. It actually took me a good dozen years or more before my mind changed on that one. Van Morrison's Astral Weeks? I still don't get. I'm not worried about it. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. But back to Arnett. At the time, I did not have enough context to comprehend his music. My ears weren't Arnett appropriate at the time. It lacked piano, which I dearly loved in jazz. It appeared to lack any kind of basic structure to hold on to, which normally helped. The noise that Coleman made with his plastic, Grafton, alto saxophone did not always sound pleasing to the ear. And so do you, my dear listener. Let me tell you that I would never recommend that you listen to Ornette Coleman early on in your jazz education. Get a little miles in you. Listen to some Coltrane and Mingus and Monk and Bird and Sonny. Listen to some other artists like Duke Ellington or Louis Armstrong or Art Tatum or Oscar Peterson or Dave Brubeck, or Bill Evans even. Get a grasp of what jazz sounds like to you. Find out what you like and why you like it. Feel the slightest bit secure in your understanding of jazz. It's only at that time that you come back to Ornette Coleman. You begin to challenge your understanding of what sounds good to your ears. Allow your perception to change. Because the music of Ornette Coleman isn't solely defined by what it is, but what it isn't. Just as Cerberus, the three-headed hound of Hades, guards the gates of the underworld, so too does Ornette Coleman stand guard at the gates of free jazz. If Charlie Parker's music gave musicians a sense of freedom, and surely, Ornette's harmonic philosophy of jazz unleashed a Pandora's box upon the world. The music of Ornette Coleman straddles the past and the future like the Colossus of Rhodes. To any musician who relied on chord structures in an order of things in order to express him or herself, Ornette must surely be the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden with an idea of freedom. Except that he isn't. If you ever listened to him in an interview... He's just a down-to-earth, soft-spoken guy, forever tasked with answering questions about how different his music is and why. He is, perhaps, the most controversial figure in the history of jazz, a man whose music divided the opinion of musicians and fans alike. Musicians he inspired created sounds that make some people run away as fast as they can, while leaving others in ecstasy. To some, it's not even music. With every other artist I've recorded an episode for, and will mention later on, I don't think your steps towards enjoyment are all that difficult. Just press play on whatever form of media you have at your disposal. Vinyl, CD, YouTube video, MP3, 
Press play and let it wash all over you. If you don't get it at first, I have every confidence that you will. Give it a second or third listen. With Ornette Coleman and the free jazz he helped to usher in, I don't know that I can make any guarantee. So let me make it easy on all of you. I am only going to cover one album in this episode of Audio Judo Does Jazz, Ornette Coleman's The Shape of Jazz to Come. There are six tracks, and I normally play six clips per episode. Perfect. If you like this album, whole worlds of music will open up to you. If you like your music wild, unhinged, hardcore, heavy, all over the place, if you just want to hear more in your music, then Ornette Coleman and Free Jazz might just be the music for you. If swing isn't enough for you, if you're not a big fan of music that's structured, this is just the appetizer. If you're one of those kids who takes off at the amusement park in order to do your own thing, let me start you off with a list of recommendations, and I'll say fairly well. You won't need me anymore. If this album doesn't intrigue you, if it doesn't delight your ears one bit, then I'll have done you a favor. I'll have saved you an investment of time and money you can spend elsewhere. With jazz, you don't have to like everything in order to appreciate the genre as a whole. It's not a requirement. You're not stupid. Jazz is stupid. <laughs> Jazz is stupid? I mean, just play the right notes. I know. <laughs> that is a clip from one of my favorite shows, The Office. It comes from season nine, their final season. I think that's just a great comic assessment of how a lot of people feel about jazz. This is perhaps a comment more relevant to Ornette Cohen's music than most. So what's the big deal with Ornette? Why am I doing an episode on him? Why is he considered controversial? Why should you care? In the liner notes to the box that I purchased, dated 1993, he wrote, Communism, socialism, capitalism, and monarchy in the world have and are changing for a truer relationship of the democracy of the individual. Every person who has had a democratic experience by birth or by passport knows there are no hatred or enemies in democracy because everyone is an individual. And so part of his concept of music is that it is a democracy. It goes to show you how much our country has changed in the last 20 years, but it doesn't detract from its implications when it comes to music. Ornette writes the idea of the song, and the musicians pull it where they think it should go. In the music we play, he said, no one player has the lead. Anyone can come out with it at any time. This is my favorite kind of music. Each player has a role in shaping the song. Each player has a moment to shine or stand out. Each player has an equal voice in dictating how the song will turn out. It's much easier for me to hear Ornette's music based on what's missing. As I said to you in the Charles Mingus episode, I tend to have a difficult time hearing the bass in songs. However, when it comes to Ornette Coleman's music, you can hear what Charlie Hayden is doing on bass as he's not sharing the same frequencies with a piano player. Ornette's music doesn't rely on chords. He plays emotion. He plays sound. It may sound at times like they're just doing anything they want to willy-nilly, but according to Don Cherry, 
The object was to try to get it on the first take. You really had to have your stuff together. We would really practice and know the tunes frontwards and backwards. It was a whole concept, an entire musical system. The song Lonely Woman is an interesting way to start the album. Something just sounds off. It starts fine enough with two different pulses. You got Hayden playing what amounts to a drone on bass. Higgins is a machine on that ride cymbal in what passes for keeping time. Coleman and Cherry aren't playing exactly in unison. They're off for some reason. Are they playing in different keys? I don't know. It's not that they can't play the melody in unison. They choose not to. Hornet recalled the origin of the song in an interview in 2005. He said, That was in 1959 or something. I had gotten to New York, and I was there a long time by myself. One night, I was playing somewhere, and I saw a man arguing with a woman. She was so helpless about how the conversation was going. I didn't try to interfere or anything. I just saw she was very sad. And my son and his mother had come to New York, and she told me that I can't raise DiNardo out here. I'm going back to California. Then I made a connection between what this guy was doing and what I was involved with. So I sat down and wrote this song. Watch any documentary about Ornette or this album, and you'll inevitably come across Lou Reed gushing about this song. He said a number of the songs he created with the Velvet Underground and things he did with the guitar, utilizing feedback, are directly inspired by this single track. When Ornette's quartet finally landed in New York City in late 1959 and had their residency at the Five Spot, their music divided the musicians around them. The jazz critic, Nat Hentoff, watched them that first night with Roy Eldridge, a legendary trumpet player. Normally a warm and generous person, Hentoff recalls Eldridge turning to him and saying, He's jiving, man. That's not music. Miles Davis later remarked, Just listen to what he writes and how he plays. If you're talking psychologically, the man is all screwed up inside. At one of the early five-spot shows, Dizzy Gillespie asked him, Are you cats serious? Thelonious Monk had been more succinct. Man, that cat is nuts. Trumpet player Maynard Ferguson said, He's got bad intonation, bad technique. He's trying new things, but he hasn't mastered his instrument yet. And that's why I've never listened to Maynard Ferguson. Apparently, I can be quite a vindictive man when it comes to music. Eldridge I can understand, as he's two generations removed from Coleman. Davis can be forgiven his comments since he tried Coleman's music later on in the 1960s, if not semantically or philosophically, at least in terms of the freedom of sound concept that he went for. His second great quintet traveled in all sorts of directions before he went the distance and fused jazz and rock and funk together in the late 1960s and early 70s. I don't fully understand why Gillespie and Monk dismissed Ornette and his band. They were revolutionaries once, too. It had only been 15 years prior. I guess the who were right. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. But as far as Maynard Ferguson is concerned, no soup for you. Coleman had his champions as well. John Lewis of the Modern Jazz Quartet stated, 
Coleman's music is the only real new thing since the mid-40s innovations of Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker, and Thelonious Monk. It also helped secure Ornette a contract with Atlantic Records and paid tuition for Ornette and Don Cherry to attend the Lennox School of Jazz. Charles Mingus offered the following. He brought a thing in. It's not new. I won't say who started it, but whoever started it, people overlooked it. It's not having anything to do with what's around you and being right in your own world. You can't put your finger on what he's doing. It's like organized disorganization or playing wrong right. And it gets to you emotionally, like a drummer. Mingus soon took up the challenge of Ornette Coleman's take on jazz in 1960. He formed a pianoless quartet with Ted Kirsten on trumpet, Eric Dolphy on alto sax, bass clarinet and flute, and Danny Richmond on drums. He recorded several albums of material throughout 1960, most notably the Charles Mingus Presents Charles Mingus album, which I highly recommend. Another champion, Gunther Schuller, said his playing has a deep inner logic based on subtleties of reaction, subtleties of timing and color that are, I think, quite new to jazz. At least they have never appeared in so pure and direct a form. John Coltrane went to hear Ornette and his band play every night, according to Charlie Hayden. He would grab Ornette by the arm as soon as we got off, and they would go off into the night talking about music. Coleman wrote in his book, A Harmelotic Life, that John called me and said he wanted to find out just how I went about playing music and writing without having a chordal structure that connected resolutions. So I said, okay, about six months, almost a year, he studied with me. And then one day I received a letter from him in Chicago saying he had found it. And there was a check in the envelope with it. He was really sincere about growing. What it sounds like to me is that Ornette Coleman's music is something you're going to have to sit with for a while before you make any snap judgments. Like a lot of difficult music, I don't think its beauty will reveal itself to you until you're ready for it. The first song Ornette Coleman's quartet recorded for Atlantic Records is a track called Focus on Sanity. Focus on Sanity starts in with a slight buildup of drums by Billy Higgins until Coleman and pocket trumpeter Don Cherry loudly announce that they have arrived and they have something to say. They are interrupted by Charlie Hayden playing bass for about two minutes, with Higgins accompanying him from the 47-second mark onwards. Coleman has held his tongue long enough and comes in at the 219 mark in order to testify. makes some good points, and then Cherry picks up at the 349 mark. Higgins eventually gets his say at the 530 mark. It just sounds like they're working towards something, a solution of sorts. My wife often uses the phrase that she and her mother are solving the world's problems when they're talking on the phone. And while I don't fully comprehend what the guys are proposing, that may be the case here. So who are these guys? Ornette Coleman was born in Fort Worth, Texas in 1930. His father passed away when Ornette was seven years old. Raised by a strict but generous mother, Ornette received his first alto sax at the age of 14. He picked up some pointers here and there, but he's largely self-taught. There wasn't any money in playing jazz at the time, so he picked up a tenor sax in order to play in some R&B bands. 
He started playing professionally in some local dives at the age of 16. When his strict mother became too much for him, he left town as a teenager. He was fired for playing bebop music in the R&B band. In Baton Rouge, his playing had been so unliked, he got beaten bloody and had his tenor sax thrown off a hill and destroyed. Soon after, he met drummer Ed Blackwell, one of his musical soulmates who would help develop his musical ideas. Blackwell would go on to play with Arnett after the sessions for his first two records with Atlantic. Don Cherry was born in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma in 1936. His family moved out to Los Angeles when he was only four years old. His father had owned a jazz club in Oklahoma City, and he tended bar in Los Angeles in the center of a vibrant jazz scene. Cherry went to a reform school due to skipping classes to play music, whereupon he met the drummer, Billy Higgins. After his initial tenure with Coleman ended in 1961 or so, he would go on to play with other like-minded free players like Archie Shepp, John Chikai, and Albert Eiler, among others. Charlie Hayden had been born in Shenandoah, Iowa in 1937. His family had been exceptionally musical and performed on the radio as the Hayden family, playing mostly country and folk songs. He sang with the family until he was 15, when he contracted a brainstem form of polio affecting his throat and facial muscles. He had become interested in jazz a year prior, after hearing Charlie Parker and Stan Kenton in concert. Once he recovered from polio, he began in earnest in taking up the bass. He soon moved out to Los Angeles at the age of 20 to begin a career. Billy Higgins was born in Los Angeles in 1936. Like Max Roach, Roy Haynes, Art Taylor, Art Blakey, and a few other drummers, based on his discography, he pretty much played with everybody. That reflects on his versatility and mastery over the drum kit. Their legacy isn't just through the records they made. Ornette's son, Donardo, started playing drums for his father at the age of 10. You may know Don Cherry's stepdaughter as Nina Cherry of Buffalo Stance fame, and his son, Eagle Eye Cherry of Save Tonight fame. Charlie Hayden's daughters, Petra, Tanya, and Rachel, continued their family's rich musical history as the Hayden triplets. They performed similar songs that their ancestors performed decades before. For me, Petra Hayden is more well-known as the artist who performed an entirely vocal version of the Who Sell Out album, creating the music only with her voice. Her sister Tanya might be more well-known to the world at large is Jack Black's wife. was Chronology, the final track on the original album. While Coleman and Cherry seem to be doing all the talking on the surface, for some reason, it sounds to me like Charlie Hayden dominates the song and pulls the conversation forward on bass underneath it all. I don't know what he's doing, but I seem to hear him above everything else. To be perfectly honest, I don't always get Ornette's music. Some of it is too far out for me. Some of it sounds like a lot of noise, and it's above my head. When I hear the band as this quartet, or with Ed Blackwell on drums on later albums, they always sound like they're having conversations I don't fully understand. It's a foreign language, or they're talking about subjects I know nothing about. It's like when I watch the show The West Wing. I love the show. I love the relationship between the different characters. 
I love how they strive to do the right thing within the confines of a system, the U.S. government, where it seems impossible to get anything done. But I find myself more times than I care to admit that I don't know what the hell they're talking about. And as a non-musician, this makes sense. I tried to find a video clip of Ornette Coleman talking about his harmelodic philosophy of music so you can begin to understand why his music is difficult to play and difficult to listen to. I wanted to give you something to hold on to, and I just couldn't grasp any of it. I couldn't, in good conscience, pass anything on to you that might confuse you. It's that way with a lot of free jazz. Coleman isn't the first artist to have abandoned the rules of jazz. Lenny Tristano, in 1949, recorded a couple of titles of free improvisations with a quintet. One of these tracks, called Intuition, I have posted on my Facebook page as a song of the day leading up to this episode. Another artist who predated Ornette is the piano player Cecil Taylor. I cannot say that I have always liked his attack on the piano. He just plays differently than anyone else, and for some, that makes him superlative. If I would recommend a record of his, it would be the first one he released called Jazz Advance, as it's the most conventional sounding. If you want to go further out with him, virtually everything else he did is out there. There's a lot of cross-pollination going on, a lot of artists inspiring one another. In the mid-60s, the Beatles and Beach Boys, Dylan and the Birds, and the Stones and the Animals and the Kinks and the Who inspired one another. The freedom that Ornette Coleman had brought into jazz fed the imagination of many of the artists that made the 60s what it was. As I have said, Coleman inspired John Coltrane. Eric Dolphy may have already been out there, but he and Coltrane inspired one another. Coltrane inspired the wailing saxophones of Albert Eiler, Archie Shepp, and Pharaoh Sanders, who in turn inspired him. Sam Rivers had been around, playing with the young Tony Williams on drums. Miles Davis's second quintet with Williams, Herbie Hancock, and Ron Carter took what they heard from everyone and helped loosen Miles Davis's reins on the music. This eventually led to him recording Bitches Brew in 1969 and all those fusion records that followed. The Art Ensemble of Chicago is well known for playing a lot of long pieces in their discography. This includes a live album called Live from Mandel Hall that consists of one song that's 75 minutes long. I've heard it. Scott brought that one in. There are a number of interesting sections in it, but that's a lot to take in. Free jazz is a mixed bag. Some of it is thrilling. It stirs the mind. It stirs the blood. Some of it is just too much. A whole lot of noodling around, honking and farting, or as Homer once said, less artsy, more fartsy. That is the song, eventually, from The Shape of Jazz to Come. It's the most beboppish of songs on the album. For long periods of the song, it sounds like Ornette is sticking his tongue out at you. One of them na-na-na-na-boo-boo, the joke's on you kind of deals. Like he's laughing at you. And then, for some reason, he sounds like a horse. It's just one of the more intriguing songs I've heard lately. If you like what you hear with The Shape of Jazz to Come, 
you have any of a number of different options as far as where to go next. You could listen to his next two releases, Change of the Century and This Is Our Music. Listening to This Is Our Music might give you an appreciation for the differences between Billy Higgins and Ed Blackwell on drums. If you want to jump in the deep end, take a stab at listening to his double quartet album called Simply Free Jazz. It's 36 minutes of cacophony. It's a lot more structured than you might think. In 1962, he would play in a trio setting with bassist David Eisenzahn and drummer Charles Moffat. We love listening to his Town Hall 1962 album, and if you like The Shape of Jazz to Come, I think you'd like that one as well. If you just can't get enough Ornette Coleman at this point, definitely look into the album Science Fiction. That album, at times, is actually spooky. A couple of other albums I highly recommend are Grishan Mankur III's Evolution and Sun Ra's Jazz and Silhouette. Evolution is about the most accessible free jazz album there is outside of this one. It's a real treat. And as far as Jazz and Silhouette is concerned, it was also recorded in 1959. It is not a free jazz album, but it is definitely one of the best albums of the period. For me, its draw is that it had the track Blues at Midnight on it, which is one of my favorite tunes. And if this gets your mouth watering for more Sun Ra, then there are an endless supply of albums that you'll find under his name. And a lot of those go pretty far out there in his own singular way. That was Peace from the Shape of Jazz to Come album. It is the palate cleanser. It is a song that wouldn't be too out of place on Kind of Blue or any other laid-back album. It's the calm before any of the other storms on the record. It's the most surprising track on the album for me. This record means so much to me. In trying to select the best songs to entice you into listening to Ornette Coleman's music, I just kept coming back to these six songs. In attempting to convey my reasoning as to why, I'm having a hard time zeroing in on its essence. Anything I say is only displaying the tip of the iceberg here. When it came to coming up with relevant connections relating to this album, several larger themes emerged. This is a difficult album made for difficult times. It's a record that can change your perspective on jazz or on music or on life itself. Because the name of the box set I have is Beauty is a Rare Thing, I wanted to write about the beauty I hear inside this record, as well as refuting the title, as I believe beauty can be found everywhere. I think instead, I'll talk about risk and bravery. When I think about all those musicians who dismissed his music when he came to New York, or those who told him to leave the stage because they didn't like what he played, or those who beat the shit out of him and destroyed his horn because they really didn't like the sound coming out of it, I think of how brave Ornette Coleman must have been to get back up on that stage and play his music over and over again. Coleman risked his health and his livelihood every time he stepped up to the mic. Jazz didn't pay well, and it paid even less if you're playing empty rooms rather than filling them up. At one point, it got so bad for him, he considered abandoning music altogether in order to study religion. He had to be talked out of that just before recording this album. I think we've all known too many people lately 
whose health and livelihoods have been at risk for a good year to a year and a half. And as much as we'd like all this to be over, we're not out of it yet. Risk was once just that stupid board game of world conquest that, like the game of Monopoly, brought the worst out of everybody who played it. It's that game that a few guys I grew up with will always remember that I broke a treaty between my troops in Africa and a fellow player in South America. I reneged on this treaty, and to this day, they'll call me out on it. I was wrong. It's not so hard to say, I'm sorry. Risk has another meaning entirely these days. But this game some people are playing with our lives is bringing an even worse element out in people. And the world sounds a lot more like Ornette's song, Free Jazz, these days. With a lot of voices saying a lot of things, attempting to talk over one another, vying for dominance. I would like all our lives to return to normal. All it would take is a little cooperation. Perhaps a little treaty, like the one I broke all those years ago. Perhaps some conversation, like Ornette and the boys have while playing. There's a quote from a letter Gustave Flaubert wrote back in the 1800s. Be regular and orderly in your life, so that you may be violent and original in your work. I'd like to be as original and violent as Ornette Coleman in my work, please. Can we return to normal together? The song Congeniality sounds like the most conventional song in the album. And that's saying something, because it sounds like a monk song, and monk songs are far from conventional. After the theme is played, Coleman's solos, while Charlie Hayden's bass underneath him, sounds huge and fat. They're soloing together over Higgins's imaginative backing. Maybe all three of them are soloing together, like Cream would do, or The Who sometimes. Cherry, as always, picks up where Ornette left off and plays. At this moment, this is my favorite song of Ornette's. Perhaps it's because it's the most conventional, as well as the most accessible. Perhaps it's because it's where Ornette meets Monk in my head, and that sparks an eargasm of sorts. A rush of serotonin and dopamine to the brain. Endorphins and such. So, at the beginning of my research, I listened to Ornette Coleman's first couple of albums, thinking perhaps his earlier material might be more accessible to new listeners. None of the tunes stuck out, though. None of them had that element. None of them said Ornette to me. I looked at the liner notes. On his first album, Something Else, there's Higgins and Cherry, but no Hayden on bass. And he's playing with a piano player. Strange. On his second album, Tomorrow's the Question, no Hayden on bass, and neither Higgins nor Blackwell on drums. While these albums are fine, and the musicians are fine, with perspective, I suppose, these albums exhibit another facet to Ornette's career. Still, they're not Ornette at his finest. Apparently, on something else, he had been contractually obliged to include a pianist. It's only with Cherry, Hayden on bass, and either Higgins or Blackwell on drums that his music began to bloom. The difference is palpable as soon as you put on The Shape of Jazz to Come. And that reminds me of my daughter Libby, 
whom I dedicate this episode to. It's hard to watch your child struggle, sometimes on a daily basis, with what I once took for granted as a child 30 to 40 years ago, playing and getting along with others. I don't know if it's because she's a girl. I've heard from numerous women that it is more difficult for girls growing up. I don't know if it's because of the age we live in, of cell phones and staying inside all the time and the danger of convenient lifestyles, this age of anxiety. I don't know if it's this general lack of trust that exists in the air. That's something that's high in supply these days. Or is it that she's different? We've heard nothing but glowing remarks from her teachers and from other adults, but we've watched her be so awkward among her peers at times, and especially around her peers that she wants recognition from. Well, Libby Lou, I'm here to tell you this. One day, you'll be surrounded by the people who allow you to be you, who won't judge. You will find your comfort zone. You will find the confidence to express yourself and be yourself and unlock all the other best parts that you never knew existed. Ornette Coleman found his guys, unleashed his voice upon the world, and created something immortal. I'm sure someday you'll find your group, you'll find that confidence to express yourself, and you'll do the same. God bless you. All my love, Chris. There you go. That's Ornette Coleman for you. If you're interested in hearing more of his music, Chris recommends you start with the album The Shape of Jazz to Come by Ornette Coleman. If you like that, then try his other albums. Change of the Century, This Is Our Music, Town Hall Concert, Science Fiction. But really, says Chris, all of his albums on Atlantic Records are worthy of a listen. Some other albums to seek out by other artists if you enjoyed Ornette Coleman and want to get out there into more avant-garde jazz. Charles Mingus presents Charles Mingus, surprisingly by Charles Mingus. Gratian Moncure III, Evolution, Sun Ra, Jazz and Silhouette. However, Chris notes this is not really an avant-garde album, but an incredible record that's a gateway into more Sun Ra, whose music definitely gets into the avant-garde. And Cecil Taylor's Jazz Advance. If you really want to go way, way, way out there, try Machine Gun by Peter Bratzman or Spy vs. Spy by John Zorn. Give a few of those a listen and then get in touch with us and let us know what you think. The website is audiojudo.com forward slash AJDJ for Audio Judo Does Jazz. On Facebook, we're at facebook.com forward slash Audio Does Jazz, Twitter at Audio Judo Jazz, or email jazz at audiojudo.com. For a direct line to Chris with your questions or comments, email chris at audiojudo.com. Also, if you're interested in finding more non-jazz music to listen to, give our original podcast, Audio Judo, a try. You can find more at audiojudo.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll talk at you next time. Mm-hmm.